Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on March 15th, 2016, and is titled Envisioning the Good Divorce, a broadly speaking event, and features Wendy Paris, a 2014 New America Fellow and author of Splatopia, Andrew Shepard, author of Children, Courts, and Custody, Interdisciplinary Models for Divorcing Families, Yijen Cheng, Deputy Director of the Matrimonial and Economic Justice Project of the Sanctuary for Families, and Casey Greenfield, a matrimonial and family lawyer. I'm a matrimonial and family lawyer, which is a euphemism for divorce lawyer in, uh, here in New York. Um, and Yijen Chang uh, runs a matrimonial economic justice project runs a matrimonial and just an economic justice project at Sanctuary for Families. Uh, Wendy Paris, among many other things, is the author of, of Splatopia. And Andrew Shepard, uh, in, in many areas of family law, has literally written the book, uh, whether it's a trial advocacy book about child custody or um, policy prescriptions for tearing your opponent down while building your family up he, he's either written it or he's whispered in the ear of the person who has. Um, one, what we're here to talk about tonight, as inspired by Wendy's book, is the idea and execution of, thanks, Jen, of the good, the quote, good divorce, the good divorce and what that, what that can mean. There are a lot of myths about divorce in America. The number that we probably all know is that, quote, half of all marriages end in divorce. Um, that number was arrived at by, crudely, by a statistician saying, okay, in a given year there are 10 marriages and five divorces. Therefore, half of all marriages end in divorce. I never got very far in higher math, but the statistics people tell me that's not an accurate way to come up, up with the idea that half of all marriages end in divorce. Um, in fact, the numbers are, are both much lower than that and much harder to quantify in many ways. People don't announce every time they set up a new household. They don't file that with the Census Bureau. Um, people often separate but don't file papers. And um, as importantly, from a kind of statistical analysis point of view, uh, the the feds, or the man, stopped keeping detailed records, statistics of marriages and divorces uh, about 20 years ago. They still maintained some, but the kinds of how many divorces, where, what, how, they're just not, they're not gathered and maintained. So there are data that you can, that you can obtain and rely on, but but, there, but it's not even like um, a number that could be criticized, like, say, the unemployment rate. So while we are doing this in, in as rigorous a way possible, there is, uh, there is a necessary degree of softness around the edges when talking about anything having to do with, um, with divorce trends um, or failure, failed policies, successful policies. But we're going to do our best, and we thank you again for being here. Um, one of the things that, that Wendy talks about in, in her book, um, well, actually, no, 
Yes. One of the things that Wendy uh, talks about and, and makes an excellent case for in her book is the notion of positive psychology uh, in, in moving forward in, in one's relationship. Um, and I guess my question for you, Wendy, is kind of in brief what that means and what the numbers, what the research says about, about maintaining a positive psychological approach in and after the split? <clears throat> That's a good question. Can you hear me? Thank you. Thank you for asking it. Thank you all for coming on this no longer rainy day. Um, how many people are familiar with positive psychology? Is that a term you're <coughs> a little bit? So um, <clears throat> this is a study of strengths and virtues, and positive psychology was kind of codified by the American Psychological Association uh, when Martin Seligman was the president, which I think was 1999, right around then. And so all of the things you've read about happiness, it's basically happiness studies. And psychology for a while um, sort of, its focus was on uh, mental illness. And when Martin Seligman came, um, came to be the president of the APA, he wanted psychology to get back to studying personality, strengths, and virtues thriving. So he came up with this idea of signature strengths, that there are 24 signature strengths, and that we all have maybe five dominant signature strengths. So I've been really interested in this. I'm not a psychologist. I know we have at least one psychologist here um, in the audience, but if anybody else wants to elaborate on this. Um, so there's not a whole lot of positive psychology specifically about divorce. Like there's not a whole lot of interventions for trauma. It's more like um, how to identify, like how to identify your strengths, how to use them in your day-to-day -day life. Um, these exercises you've read about expressing gratitude, that comes from positive psychology. Or the idea of writing a thank you note to somebody who's really made a difference in your life, that that will make you happier than going to the movies, that comes from positive psychology. So I wanted to know, well, what can we say about um, holding yourself to your highest standards or holding on to your strengths and virtues or your ideals, even in a difficult time? So the most interesting study um, specifically about positive psychology and divorce um, was done at the University of Arizona, and they looked at um, things like gratitude, uh, self-esteem, self-compassion, and what correlates most strongly with positive divorce recovery. And what they came up with was that self-compassion is the most important trait uh, in, in positive divorce recovery, and it's something that you can build. So I have in my chapter two, seven principles of parting, seven principles of parting, and number one is commit to self-compassion. Um, Self-compassion has three parts. Uh, see the universality of your experience rather than thinking you're the only person who's ever gone through this, to recognize that suffering is part of the human condition. Um, view yourself with understanding and forgiveness rather than criticizing yourself. Um, people often speak, well, you know, we'll speak to ourselves with these really harsh words and we don't even hear it, you know, like... I destroyed my marriage, only losers get divorced, you know, I'm so lazy, I didn't work hard, whatever it is. And you would never say these kinds of things to your friends, but a lot of us have this kind of thing in our, in our head. And so there's exercises to practice speaking to yourself the way you would speak to a friend. Um, and then the third point of self-compassion is mindfulness. Um, in divorce, that means acknowledging how you're feeling, but not being overwhelmed by it. So not sort of drinking it away, um, or jumping into the next relationship, which all the men like to do, apparently. Um, but <laughs> but um, I'm sure women do this too. But, uh, but
but, but, but sitting with negative feelings and also putting them down and going on and doing fun things, bringing fun things into your life. Thank you, Wendy. So one of the, uh, one of the, the process-oriented aspects of what, what Wendy and, and other writers and lawyers and thinkers and talkers consider to be the, the good divorce or the progressive divorce model um, is one that, that doesn't necessarily involve the, the typical adversarial knockdown, drag out, fight in court. Um, in when Wendy's book, there's a chapter called, I'm going to par- I'll paraphrase, but I think it's called Don't Buy Your Lawyer a Country House, um, <laughs> which a lot, a lot of people who've been divorced around here, you know, probably feel like they have and, and maybe have. Uh, and th- there have been, there are movements in, in pretty much every state that I know of, uh, and definitely in the districts also, district, I don't mean like the Hunger Games district, I mean like Washington, that uh, to find a way through the process that does not involve buying your lawyer country house or having to assert the position that your ex-spouse the, or, and possibly the parent of your children is the worst person in the world. Um, and some of these are referred to as alternative dispute resolution. And I was wondering if Andy, I mean, if Professor Shepard might want to give a, a little explanation of what um, mediation means and what, if he knows, what collaborative divorce means. And he doesn't have to, but he's allowed. Don't have to know? or, or You don't have I to don't know have to what collaborative it. is, and you certainly the, don't have to I, tell I, me. I wrote the Uniform Collaborative Law Act. So I actually do know something about that. Um, so, so in a nutshell, for a non-legal okay. audience. All right, so right. Um, let's start with mediation. That's, that's easier, because collaborative law is actually a, a, a mess. A, an outgrowth in some ways of mediation. Mediation is you, you take a trained facilitator, and you put the trained facilitator in the middle of the conversation between the uh, spouses, Okay, now and there are different models of mediation, evaluative, facilitative, transformative. Sometimes there are lawyers present, sometimes there aren't. Some mediation in some states, not New York, is compulsory where children are involved and the courts provide the services. The mediator has no power to order anybody to do anything. The mediator is a conversation facilitator. They can make suggestions, but they basically try to keep people talking. There's also no obligation on anyone to agree to anything in mediation. You can walk pretty much at any time. Um, So the studies show litigants actually like mediation. Um, The great danger with mediation is is when you get somebody into mediation who really shouldn't be there, and that's victims of violence, uh, people without uh, mental capacity. So that's... Uh, that's one problem. And, the, and just for those of us who don't obsess about these issues, um, I think what Andy's getting at is the, when he says shouldn't be there, uh, he's referring to the fact that the mediator is not an advocate for either party. Sorry. And that if there is an extreme power imbalance in the room, uh, I think what he's cautioning it against is that that, that that would be sort of without a net in a, se- in a setting where there's simply a neutral party, but That's right. go on. No. So collaborative law is the net. 
Okay, basically, that's, that's the difference. So, Andy, distinguished professor, what's collaborative law? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, collaborative law is essentially all parties, the, the husband, the wife, let's assume we, you know, we have a, that kind of marriage, and the lawyers. Don't sign assume that kind of stuff. You can do it without husband and wife. Parties. You can do it unmarried. Anybody can do it. You can do it. In, but you, um, they, they sign an agreement called a participation agreement, which commits them to good faith negotiations, basically, in how to, in settling their divorce, voluntary disclosure. Okay. If, however, the agreement says that if, however, either party opts for litigation, both lawyers have to withdraw. So is, in effect a commitment to settlement, right? Because starting over with a new lawyer causes more expense, more trauma, more difficulty. In the unlikely event that anyone in our audience is, has, never, has never been divorced, um, what is settle, settlement? Settlement means that you decide your own, the outcome of your divorce. Mm -hmm. It might be, you know, with your lawyer, you, it might feel like it's not really... You're the best for you when you're signing it, but it means that a judge doesn't make the decision. Um, if you don't settle and it's adjudicated, it goes through the courts, um, all the way through the courts, a judge, a judge or referee will make a final decision. So when Andy's saying it, get, it is an incentive to get to settlement, he's saying these are lawyers who, if you don't come to an agreement to resolve all your problems, <laughs> the problems of your marriage, um, those lawyers aren't going to court for you, right? That's right. And you ha to get divorced, you have to resolve whether you want to be divorced, uh, all the economic issues, child support, property, alimony, maintenance. Uh, you have to resolve parenting issues, like where, who's making decisions for your child and where your child is going to live. Uh, all those, ha and th those issues have to be resolved in a written agreement. The courts require that. So collaborative law also uses um, neutrals as support team, like there's a, often a child specialist to support the parents. Uh, during the process. There's often a parent coach. There's often a, a neutral financial planner. What's said in the meetings, and which is also true in mediation, is supposed to be kept out of the court system. It's confidential and not, and sub, and not subject to uh, discovery or testimony. So the idea is these folks are committed to trying settlement hard, really hard. And if it doesn't work, either side can walk at any time and then collaborative law is over, and they have to start over with new lawyers and litigation. So, and so what, thank you, Andy, distinguished professor. <laughs> so what, what that all means in a, in a broader or, or lay setting is that, among other things, um, it is that in theory, as uh, along with a lot of the principles that, that Wendy discusses in her book, in a collaborative model, nobody has to... Uh, run the risk of anything getting disclosed to a, to a judge if they litigate in the future. The idea being that then, bless you, that, it, that there's no posturing. Nobody has to say, I want all the money because I'm better and whatever. Uh, because it's, it's never going to get leaked. It's never going to make its way to a judge. So you don't have, the idea is that you don't have to take as extreme a position in negotiation than to work towards your actual settlement point. And the conclusion, or the next sort of conclusion from that is, well, um, if there's less posturing, then there's more likely to be harmony. I mean, that's a kind of crude way to describe it. Um, 
which brings me to Ejen Chang, who I'm, I'm hoping that you'll do a, a better job than I could do of explaining what Sanctuary for Families is. Um, in my extremely limited experience, Sanctuary for Families is a sanctuary for, <laughs> for uh, families that are, yeah, for families who uh, often in situations where there is an extreme power imbalance, domestic violence, um, and a need to get out of, of the home. And Sanctuary provides both legal and, and other kinds of support. My question for you, after you either correct me or expand or whatever, or whatever you'd like to do, Ejen, is kind of to, to ask you this. Um, Andy has just described these two model, basically two models of, of alternative dispute resolution. Um, Wendy's discussed, um, you know, I'll, I'll say, I'll reduce it to um, kind of a, a state of mind and, and a bringing into practice that state of mind. Um, and, and has talked about the, what little research there is on, on positive psychology. So I guess my question for you is, in, when, when you see clients at, say, Sanctuary, um, are, they, are they in a position even to think about these things? To think, oh, I have to be mindful, or gee, I hope we can collaborate, or whatever, or is it just, <gasps> my back's against the wall, help? Or is it something totally different? So thank you again, and thank you for inviting me. Um, Sanctuary for Families is a uh, nonprofit service providers to all survivors and victims of gender-based violence. That means domestic violence, that means sex trafficking, that means FGM, uh, female genital uh, mutilation, uh, all sort of gender-based violence. So we provide free legal services in a wide spectrum of different areas of law, immigration, family law, matrimonial law, to the survivors, and also we provide clinical services, individual counseling, group support group, art therapy, children program, teenage program, and we have shelters, emergency shelter and transitional shelters. We also have an economic empowerment program. We have our own computer lab. We train women survivors, not just women, I'm sorry, <laughs> not just women actually. We have a lot of uh, male survivors as well. Um, train them for job readiness and even English is a second language. So uh, in our line of work, we try to end violence through direct services to individuals and also education in the community and make policy and legislative change in the system. So um, in terms of matrimonial practice that we are having, I will have to say I started Accenture 10 years ago and I was a helpline specialist. So I got phone call all the time. As you can imagine, a person reach out to you and it could be the first time she or he tells a story to a stranger. And I will say more than half the phone call, the first thing they ask is, I want a divorce. And my job or our job is actually to identify the actual needs because at the time, I think the person may not want to jump into divorce. It could be finding an order of protection, getting a shelter, applying for maybe work authorization, immigration status, getting public benefit, getting food stamp, or even deal with custody visitation, child support issue in family court first. And so just, I'm going to interrupt you for in the unlikely event that somebody here is not litigated in the, in the family, in the courts. Um, Ejen was just saying that in addition to asking for, you know, talking about wanting divorce, that 
that the helpline would receive calls from people wanting to resolve custody, financial issues, et cetera. Uh, in, uh, in, in many states, there are complex court systems that are vestiges of ancient court systems that don't make very much sense. In New York, um, it's, it, is off, it is possible and is often the case that somebody will go to court, to a family court, to receive a custody order or a child support order when they're not actually getting divorced. That can be for one of at least two reasons. One is you're not ready to get divorced, and the other one is you're not married to begin with. So I right. just wanted to explain that. And for, also, you know. yeah, family court is a lower court, but in New York State, to get a divorce, the only court you can go to is state Supreme Court. So now, uh, when I deal with divorce, basically I practice both contested and uncontested. What it means is what Andrew just say that in your state to deal with a divorce, you need to get a legal reason for divorce. You need to deal with custody, visitation, child support. If you have any children in common, you need to deal with all the economic issues. Only after you deal with all that, either you resolve it by settlement or by the court's determination after litigation, then you can get divorced. So... Contested, uncontested actually mean contest mean biting. So you actually mean if both parties agreed on all the issues, it can be uncontested. It can be done on paper, and you actually do not need to go to court to handle this divorce. And contested means that as long as there's one issue remain unresolved, undetermined, then you will have to litigate in court. But now I hear about uh, the word collaborate, uh, negotiation for settlement. Actually, it can still happen after your case goes through the court and you start the litigation process because throughout the litigation, it doesn't mean that the first day you end up in court, you appear in court, you will have to sit on the witness stand and start to testify because actually... I would say usually it takes probably a year, more than that sometimes in New York State, especially downstate, to actually get a trial date. And so, you know, appearance after appearance, the court would pretty much also push for the party to settle, like limited the issue in this divorce, we have five unresolved issues, and we can limit a certain issue by settlement, and then identify the real issue that you cannot come to agreement, then we litigate the issues. And so, in 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 your client, when you in your if your clients are coming out of situations of uh, of a kind of violence of one form or another, do setting aside for a moment the issue of a of a settlement that occurs long into litigation, um, does the does the collaborative or alternative model um, work? Is it or is it too broad to generalize or? Or is what Andy was, was saying, when Andy said, you know, when you got people who shouldn't be in mediation, is that what you see? I don't, actually, if there's any domestic violence ever um, asserted in any action, I don't think the court will actually try to encourage people to settle or negotiate that way. Okay. And the reason is because domestic violence is pretty much the expressions of power and control. So when two people, they don't have the same footing. And power and control can be expressed through physical abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse. I have so many clients, they have no idea uh, what their spouse's social security number are. 
and even they are married for 10 years or they have no access to any bank account. They are so isolated they cannot even go out to get a job or to learn English. And usually when they start to go out to get new friends or get educated, that's pretty much when the abuse started. So because of the imbalance in power and control, I really don't see how mediation or uh, that type of uh, you know, ideal good divorce can happen in that setting. But, but I do think about what is divorce when I got invited to this. Yeah, of course. And I have a short answer is that I hope everybody get out unharmed, you know? Right. But, right. but the true answer is that I think one person really need to get all the support that he or she can get, um, even in so a domestic violence And that dovetails with, with what, I think what, with what Wendy's broader points are. Um, I guess so then a question to you, Wendy, would be, um, there's a, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, Wendy writes about the, the rise of no-fault divorce, meaning a, a divorce action in which, in which legally um, you might be fighting about everything under the sun, but you don't have to state uh, a grounds, a basis for the divorce, other than the fact that the relationship has broken down. And actually in, in some states, including New York, courts have held, and I love this, that it only takes one person to say the relationship's broken. Um, because there were cases in which one person was saying their relationship's broken down and the other spouse would say, no, that's not why we're getting divorced. It's because I had an affair or whatever. You had an affair. And multiple judges have said, if one person says it's broken, it's broken. So the other side so, even fight about it. Yeah, so yeah. they don't even, they can't even argue that. Um, and in, in Wendy's book, there's, there's significant discussion about the rise of this no-fault divorce, um, and then the rise of these alternative resolution models. Um, and I, my, my question for you is sort of twofold. The first is what, what the research shows about, about, that, about the correlation between those two, because I wasn't, I, I'm not that clear on the act, hard data. When I've looked for studies on collaborative divorce and, and its, um, its effects long-term or its success long-term, it's, it's, I find it's hard to find the numbers. For the same reason, it's hard to find any numbers about divorce that are solid. Um, so if you'd like to speak to that, great. And I'll hitch that on to, um, I guess, a, a question coming off of what Ejen is saying. Um, for you, in the context of your book, and I don't mean le I don't. I'm not asking this legal unless you want to answer it. Answer it as a legal question. Um, what is the good divorce to you in in the rubric of the of what Ejen is discussing? And I don't mean to minimize the the populations that that are more readily um, discussed in your book. It's just you know she's discussing one model. Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, typically say in the beginning that um, I'm not addressing an incredible power imbalance, I'm not addressing mental illness, I'm not addressing abuse. That's, those, those problems derail marriages on their own, and that's not, in my mind, a divorce conversation. You know, that's a, those are mental illness conversations. That's a different conversation. But if we want to talk about the good divorce, so I'm interested in people who are not 
um, um, you know, really sucked under by serious uh, mental illness, but people who, you know, are basically functioning people, and yet those are the people you see that have these $600,000 divorces and spend three years or 10 years fighting, and they were sane, you know, when you knew them, they were sane. Before the divorce, they were sane, and now, you know, I feel like everybody we know who's gone through a divorce, not everybody, but a large percentage will say, to me, well, your husband was reasonable, but my husband is a narcissistic, sadistic... They're all... They're right? all there's they're never all, right. been a... There's <laughs> never been a man get, going through a divorce who's not a narcissist. There's never been a woman who's not borderline. borderline True borderline, fact. Borderline, right, True fact. Right. And then, and then I... And I, and then I this is, I'm going to give you a long answer, but I, I, I would always think, like, how did so many perfectly reasonable, sane individuals manage to marry narcissistic, sadistic, borderline... You know, how is that possible? And um, so, so I would say there's there's four reasons, and and one reason is that um, divorce is emotionally regressive, which means uh, this is a, a one of the psychi- psychiatrists in my book talked about it this way, which is if you're a little bit suspicious, you might become paranoid. If you're a little bit selfish, you might become greedy because it's stressful and it's scary, and you might be feeling guilty, you might be feeling shameful, maybe you committed the affair and you need to make sure it doesn't look like it was your fault. You know, I mean, there's, there's, so it's, it's emotionally regressive. Um, old laws kind of forced, this is how I, this is how I address it. And again, you're all lawyers, so you can jump in. But um, old laws, uh, before no fault, you had, the only way you could get divorced was to go to court and say, uh, my husband has hit me, or he's had an affair, or he's committed a felony. The details varied state by state, but you had to um, prove that your spouse was a moral or a legal reprobate, or you couldn't get divorced. And in some states, if you if you in any way uh, provoked it or were not spotless yourself, the judge could send you back home uh, with this man who was abusing you. So with no when no fault came in, and it um, gave people the ability to say, "I want to get divorced because I am very unhappy." Uh, not he, so he no or she no longer had to be this horrible animal, and I talk a lot about how in the 60s and 70s, as society was changing uh, and more people, uh, women, you know, were were starting to want to work, were being able to work, um, rises in health, public health and wealth really changed what it meant to be an individual in a family. People started wanting out of marriages that were holding them back. So I have a whole sort of explanation, you know, one one way of looking at it. People were seeking divorce, and they were making up. They, they would make up these grounds. Except. Yes, go, on. go ahead. Yes, Do you want to? Yes. Okay, so the model of divorce through the adversary, we haven't talked about this, but the $600,000 is small change in some places. And the three to say. five to t- years is also small change, and we haven't yet talked about the damage to the children that occurs, which is substantial from continuing conflict. Um, the problem is the changes that have occurred in social attitudes towards divorce have not been accompanied by, at least in my view, by changes in the procedure by which we get divorced, okay? And you're talking about the legal procedure? Oh, and the the mental model of divorce. So um, just the mental model, when you talk about the mental model of divorce, um, are you, is, are you, I mean, my understanding is that the, the studies of, of ADR, meaning not slugging it out in court, are pretty inconclusive, are saying, it's not that they're bad, we just don't know if they're good. Yeah, but let's start but with let's the studies for- of litigation. Oh, okay, so, need we? I mean, <laughs> so but it, yes. It, 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 let's start there, okay? Um, but hold, but can, if you could, can you talk about this from where I think you were going anyway, which is, 
the effect of, on the on the children and yeah. what the what the studies bear out because if you've got you've got children in an unhappy home and then there are a few options right the children can stay in the unhappy home the children could be in two unhappy homes the children could be in two happy homes etc uh, what does the research say in terms of how you get there. Okay, Let, let's start with the single best. Ch divorce is not a death sentence for children, okay? It all depends on how the parents behave. Everything depends on the parents, okay? All the psychological research, and we just had a group that from an uh, association I belong to brought it together, all major divorce researchers and so forth, say the single best predictor of whether or not a child will adjust to a divorce and circumvent it and become... A, a, a whole person is the level of conflict between the parents. The higher the level of conflict between the parents, the worse the chances are for the child to heal coming through the divorce and treat it as, as, as a pro. Okay, parentheses, question. Uh, let's accept that as true. What then if one of the parents is, say... I don't know, untrustworthy, um, in some kind of acceptedly uh, verifiable way, right? Okay. I don't, then is it, well, no conflict, low conflict is better for the children, ergo what? Or is it that doesn't count? All right, no, it's, it's neither. Um, it's, um, I like that. <laughs> we have... When we have serious parental disability, mental illness, alcoholism, diagnosable events, okay, then we've got a different problem than he's a narcissist, which is all undiagnosed narcissism, because that means your surgeons, your teachers, your bus drivers, your mailman, your, you know, all, they're all undiagnosed narcissists and incapable of raising children. Um, the research strongly suggests that any agreement between parents who are reasonably competent is better than having an order imposed upon them. Okay, so because they buy in more to what their the plan is and they're more willing to understand and trust each other if they reach an agreement. Right. And this dovetails also with something Wendy discusses in her book um, and, and which you hear in, in discussions of alternative dispute resolution and settlement all the time, which is, um, which is the, the buy-in that Andy's talking about, that psychologically, if, if the parties have agreed, executed an agreement, um, whether it's a, it may be positive, right? They may commit to it because they feel some ownership over the agreement. It may be negative. They may feel ashamed to, or, or they may feel like they're, uh, they don't want to renege on a promise they made, but that, but what Andy's saying, and, what, and it, I think is very hand-in-hand -hand with, with a lot of what Wendy discusses, is that the, the participation in the agreement um, le leads to a, a more, more of an adhesion or an adherence or a kind of identification with that agreement down the line. You could poke holes in, in that as to whether that's good or bad, but I'll let, I, Andy, I totally interrupted you. No, I would say that... I would say that um, I think this is so important, and I don't even think we have to just think about the legal agreement. The way I talk about it is, oh yeah, we don't. You're, like, that's you're, like you're yeah. the parents, right? And so we try to stay. You know, as a country, we try to stay out of 
parenting when people are married, right? I mean, we have these, you know, more laws. It's like nanny state laws, but basically we let parents make these decisions. As soon as you get divorced, if you throw it at a judge, you're asking a judge to make those decisions. You're giving away your power, and that judge doesn't know you. That judge is probably busy. I mean, Andy could address this. The courts are really um, overworked. There's a whole movement to get divorce out of court. So I think, you know, yes, they adhere, they, they stick to the plan because they had a hand in it. There is some research that mediated agreements tend to stick longer. People do not relitigate. They're happy with the decision. But I would even just take a step back and say, you're the parents. So if you can sit down with this person you married or had kids, you know, had kids with and say, let's, let's us talk about it. You know, even I would go so far as, you know, I advise people um, to say to their ex, I want to thank you for these lovely children we have, or I want to thank you for supporting me while they were small. This kind of extending an olive branch to this person you're ostensibly fighting with, you know, brings, brings your parenting back to you and take, you know, I, I'm always advising people to stay out of court. Again, I'm not talking about, you know, these extreme situations. I'm talking about the bus driver, you know, the narcissist. Maybe he's narcissistic, but he's also really a really good soccer coach. So let's say you're a great soccer coach and, you know, let's have the afternoons be some, you know, the time that you spend with your right. father. Actually, there are so many reasons that I sometimes, we sometimes will encourage our client to stay away from the court because the system could be very traumatizing uh, and re-victimize survivors and especially for children. Actually, in in divorce cases, I think custody visitation, especially the visitation part is the hardest part to address. You constantly feel you are at odds with your client because it's really hard, especially when I am representing the survivor and the court, the system is the criteria for custody visitation is best interest of child and one factor you must address is domestic violence and another factor that the court will look into is that are you a good parent by facilitating your child's relationship with the other party when your child is drawing a, a picture of you know my daddy strangle my mommy in the room and then the mom also need to encourage the child to see the father it's hard and the court sometimes they don't I would say the court, the city, the state, they are trying to put in more resource for custody visitation, support to the family, but it's just hard. There's no supervised visitation providers around the city that is actually, you know, I would say domestic violence sensitive or in general sensitive. And, And the court will sometimes look at my client like, do you have family? Do you have uncle, father, sister to supervise, grandma? But this doesn't work because supervised visitation take a lot, a, a long time to happen, and and it's a big commitment. So, so I'll say. So it's what hard. happens, Andy, if there's the the mom or dad or whatever parent? And I apologize, we're we're focusing on on divorces that involve children. Um, everyone probably knows that that Nora Ephron famously said that that they should have a different word for it if you don't have children, uh, because whatever. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's true in some ways. And having been divorced without a child, um, I have one view on it personally. Um, I've certainly seen many painful, difficult divorces that didn't involve children, plenty of amicable ones that did. But um, it's, a, it's a kind of jokey shorthand for the fact that uh, presumably if you don't have children in common, um, you, the choices between the two of you as to whether to maintain a relationship down the line or not, um, be it financial, social, whatever. But Andy, if so, you got um, Wendy saying, you know, the parents, the, the let's find each other as parents. Um, you're saying the best outcome for the children is the one where the parents agree, Andy. What if you have, if one of those parents 
either won't take the olive branch or whatever. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to lead you to, well, then you go to court, because we all know litigating through trial is a disaster. Um, but what if there is no, either no trust or someone who's not crazy, like DSM whatever, although I guess we all are now, um, right, and DSM-5, thanks, Wendy, uh, but just where there's no, there is not only an imbalance of power, but um, an imbalance of trust or someone who just doesn't show up or whatever. Yeah, uh, that's the hardest problem. I mean, that, so how do you develop trust between two people who... Or what's the best outcome when there isn't trust? Well, the best outcome when there isn't trust, and I don't have a lot, this one I don't have a lot of empirical evidence for, but it's a concept of parallel parenting. You do your thing, I do my thing, we communicate by email, right. approximately, so that we live in parallel universes and try not to interfere with each other. It's the difference between a cold piece and a warm piece, right? The, the cold piece is stop killing each other, okay, and just stay away. The warm piece is, you know, he's really not such a bad guy, and he's maybe still a good soccer coach, and you can actually right. say good things about them. And what Andy's, the point that Andy's making now also underscores the, the point drawn from the research that, he's, that he led with, which is that the, the number one predictor is the level of conflict between the parents. So his, his response to my hypothetical, when I'm saying, what if they don't trust each other, they don't like each other, they're not going to be olive branching, et cetera, the idea of parallel parenting... Um, which we can all imagine has, has pros and cons, it, it has the hallmark that both Wendy and, and Andy are, are discussing, which is, well, but there's, much, there's far reduced conflict. And what the courts often do, in my experience, and I haven't seen, I think studies on this would be very hard to come by, but I'd love to be told I'm wrong, is that in, in cases that are, and I don't mean cases, legal cases, I mean instances, families, where there are, where there's likely to be conflict, um, one of the goals of either the parties who are negotiating or the court is to minimize the necessary encounters between the parents. In some ways, it's counterintuitive, and it sounds like it runs counter to Wendy's point, and maybe in some cases it does, but not necessarily. But the, the signal example is, um, well, instead of picking the kids up on Friday at 6 and bringing them home on Sunday at 8 p.m., pick them up from school, get them to your house from school on Friday and drop them off on Monday morning. Because during that, the parents don't have to see each other. They don't have to fight. One of them doesn't have to say the check was late or whatever. Conversely, you could say they also don't get to talk about how the kids are doing. No, I, I but think, it's creating... Yeah, yeah I was just going to ask that's, her. I think that's a really important... Whether you, whether point you that you're making, um, you know, I'm all like, oh, my husband and I go, you know, my ex-husband and I go hiking, but for a lot of people, for all of us, I would say boundaries are really important. And, and, and you talk and about that in the what, book. Yeah, that's in the book. And that's, that's what you're talking about. So you're, what you're talking about, I've heard described as blind transitions. And I think that there's a, um, a mistake those of us in amicable divorces can make, which is not having enough distance to go on in your life. And I think this is, you know, a good divorce in a bad situation uh, in my mind, is extricating yourself from the chaos of the other person and, and shifting that's, your... And that's yeah. also a whole section in your... I mean, yeah, that's a chapter in your right. book. Like, so shifting your, your focus to, you know, your life, your future, and trying to get your focus away from how you've been wronged or what an awful person this was. Like, to, right. to, you know, to pull it back to you. So blind transitions is, is very helpful 
Um, there's a website, Our Family Wizard, that oh, yes. has a tone meter on it. So there's, you know, there's, I did an article about this recently, these new sites that are cropping up to help people have a better divorce. So if you're about to send an email and it sounds um, you know, provocative or aggressive, the site will alert you that this might, you know, right, that right. this might uh, instigate a fight. So there's a lot of, there's a new site called Support Pay. Dot com And the idea is that um, they'll process your child support payment and they'll remind you. So it's not your ex-wife reminding you and it's not your ex-wife. It's usually the man who's paying still. It's not your ex-wife getting mad about it. Um, you can post your expenses and then the, the other parent can say, I don't agree. I'm not going to pay $100 for tennis shoes. I'll pay 60 And then the site will... Um, do the math for you and give you a bill. And so um, there's uh, what you're saying is true. And there's just there's a lot of support for having, you know, more separate lives, but not not fighting while you're doing that. Well, it sounds like the the way that it, that that comes together with with your. Uh, I am sorry. I, I have a lawyer head. I was going to say your position is that um, you want to you want to take this the stress out. You want to de-stress or de-escalate situations that are prone, that are likely to cause stress, right? Like a Friday afternoon transition is something when people might be stressed out uh, and yeah. then, but maybe you could talk about the planning the kid's birthday party offline or on that walk or or yeah, or whatever. people, you know, in a in a in a, a conflictual situation, people can. You know, somebody in LA was saying, "I'm so happy about our family wizard because I can plan the birthday party on the site, and you know, I know I have, or if you know, I know I have a place where I can send him an email. I don't have to have this anxiety about the conversation that we're going to have." Right. And to each of you, I guess. Well, I'm curious about what. How a divorce, because if there's a study on this, I'd love to see it. I haven't. If a person either isn't ready or isn't privileged enough or isn't, um, is, isn't in the position to have the kind of split that Wendy discusses, at least at the outset, uh, whether, whether they're in a high-conflict violent situation or whether they're just angry or, or whatever, um, can, a, can a divorce get from a not, go from being a not good divorce to being a good divorce. There's a lot of start as you intend to continue in a lot of what we teach and discuss and see. So I guess my questions for all of you would be, okay, let's say you haven't started out in this great way, either because you don't trust the person or whatever, or et cetera. I think it's a really important point. People do change. They change with time. Uh, you know, we change ourselves, and so I have a lot of stories. This is anecdotal. This is not studies. I have a lot of stories of people who say everything got better when he apologized for something he really did owe me an apology for, or one of the worst divorces I've ever seen up close. She had brought him to court. She had the son strip searched by a third party. She accused him of child abuse. It was horrible, and he, you know, and I heard his side. I just heard it from him, and he went away and had this epiphany and came back and called her and said, I want to thank you for these lovely children and I want to raise your child support because the fact that you're watching your kids lets me focus on my career and I want to thank you. And so she's still, you know, crazy, borderline, whatever, but he's able to manage it. And that happened after, I guess, four years of a pretty ugly scene. And, and I've, I've seen this a lot in, in just in my interviews. Uh, I think need, people need support to grow. I mean, I basically, they need, and it's wonderful that you provide some, uh, as much of it, I, and I haven't yet, talk, but the single biggest f 
problem in the divorce, in addition to the procedure, but the single biggest problem, and to me, in the divorce system is a significant number of our people have to go to court to get a divorce, but they don't have any money for support, legal, legal fees, uh, psychological counseling, uh, drafting, uh, all. The, the problem is not, this is not just a problem of the poor. Okay? This is a problem of the lower middle class and middle class. And it's a problem, well, it's a problem of the upper class, too, but they, they bankrupt themselves very often by going into a divorce. So um, I just finished a study of self-represented litigants. Self-represented okay. litigants People are? People who represent themselves in divorces. Okay, so in the legal system world, they are perceived of as crazies, right? Because you're, you're insane, you don't want a lawyer, you, you, you don't listen to a lawyer and all that. The reality is... They can't afford it. They would really like a lawyer. They put down a retainer. They burn through the retainer. Then they can't get another lawyer because they don't have any more, any more money for a retainer. And the choice for them is between food and dental care for their kids or paying a lawyer. So they rationally choose paying a lawyer, and they're terrified and scared out of their mind and do not get the perspectives and services that are needed, I think, to do the transitions that you're, all, that you're talking about. So they get worse, they get obsessive, they get difficult. So I've been involved, and, and it's in Wendy's book, which is great, in a project in Denver where we've been providing one-stop shopping, fee-paid mediation, drafting, financial planning, um, child assessment, therapy, and all for, for kids, diagnosis, uh, screening devices. It's a joint project of their law school, social work school, psychology department, and financial planning. And the satisfaction level in that is comparatively superb. I mean, the, the, the people think they've been well treated. Yeah, that, and that's, that's yeah, an interesting Yeah, this picture. is key. This, um, Andy's talking about the Center for Out-of-Court Divorce, which I write about in my little chapter. And we're talking about all the millions of problems with divorce, but we're also seeing there's some great solutions. And this is one of them. It's a nonprofit. Um, it's just in Denver, and they're trying to raise money for it to go nationally, and have had some trouble. So that, you know, what... What we really need is, is, is funding and support. But so the Center for Out-of-Court Divorce, you're going to get divorced or maybe you're not married, but you have kids. You go in, they do an intake session and they hear your story and they say, okay, okay, I think your kids should go to a workshop and it sounds like you need some financial education and maybe some counseling. And the services are like between $20 and $95 an hour because it's a, they're using students and it's a nonprofit model. Um, and so you go through that and then once you sort of figured out what you want to do, uh, there's a, a mediator sits with you and you create a parenting plan and a separation agreement and then the judge comes to, it was at the university, now it's outside the university, and, and, and handles it there. So it's like a, I felt like I want to get divorced in Denver. Like what's this, you know, how long do you have to live in Denver in order to, because it's, it's uh, months. six months, yeah, six which months. seemed like a little long for me. But I kind of wanted to just wait to do my own divorce until the center for out of court California, right. but it you know it didn't happen. But it's a, so there's 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 a lot of information. When I started this, I felt like oh, there's no good ideas about how to have a decent divorce. Oh, or, could you talk and, about the 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 Dutch thing, the destination? Oh right. So um, <laughs> this uh, so this is another guy. There's something called Divorce Hotel, and uh, it's a uh, he's not a lawyer. A guy in um in the Netherlands saw a lot of ugly divorces, and he thought one of the big problems is your friends and family are advising you, and they don't know, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. They are telling you, like, the worst, right? They, they, they love you, but they're telling you the worst, giving you the worst possible advice. So his idea was, uh, 
it's basically a destination mediation company. So you go to a lovely resort, like uh, the Gideon Putnam Resort uh, here in Saratoga Springs, and then there's you know there's photos of Caribbean resorts. So you're you're uh, <laughs> you're away from your friends and family. You have room service. You maybe have a view over the ocean, and you meet with the mediator there, the two of you, um, and the mediator, and like over three days, you can come up with a parenting plan and a separation agreement. You don't have to have kids to do this. And um, it's sort of a lovely divorce moon, I guess. And we can, um, we can maybe agree that, that while that specifically isn't probably available to everybody, maybe, that maybe idea, it comes from an idea. Yeah, that it's a great idea. It's somehow, a lovely idea. Yeah. It's a lovely idea. Yeah. Yeah. We had an idea. My, my parents divorced in the Dominican Republic um, because it was before no fault uh, was available in Ohio, and they did not want to um, go to court and lie about each other in front of their friends. They weren't going to do it. So my ex-husband, we, were, we had moved to California, and we were you know, on the balcony drinking wine, and he said, I got this great idea. We should get divorced in the Dominican Republic. It has a great heritage. It'll be so, I don't know what, like it'll be so literary or so anyway. We'd, and then I had this, like, do I want to take a vacation with my ex-husband? Or do I want to get divorced and meet someone else and take a vacation with a new person? But, yeah. yeah. Right. It's not necessary now because of no fault. Right. And what do you see as the most common, or in your work at Sanctuary, um, are there are there pitfalls that that clients, you know, fall into uh, that that are that you could extrapolate to a broader population, or is it too specific? Is it is it too specific because they're? Yeah, I, I actually I like was thinking would, about yeah. how to respond to what both Wendy and Andrew just yeah. said. First, to Andrew, I think I echo your sentiment, and that's why I've been working with a lot of law students. I supervise over a hundred law students from Columbia, from NYU, from Cardozo, for them to do uncontested force. Uh, for survivors, and also I work with big law firms recruiting pro bono associates so they can handle a little bit more complicated cases and even publication divorce, like the spouse disappear and you publish your divorce paper on newspaper, and that's another way. But I think, you know, divorce, coming back to divorce, it's actually an empowering experience to a lot of our clients because, you know, you are having a closure, and divorce is a, finally you can sever the tie with that abusive past and that person. And you can regain your pre-abuse identity. And that's actually a very empowering journey. And I think your book actually greatly reminds us of value that divorce is not just a legal journey. It's very emotional. And as I was reading your book, I had this kind of scary experience and lesson. Uh, no, no, it happened actually, but uh, one of our clients, she was severely physically abused by a very, very violent, paranoid husband who strangled and did all that to her. And she left home three times and went back to him three times. And she came to me to do divorce. And then she was living in a homeless shelter and she had to sit on the chair. It's not even a shelter, it's a drop center. So they provide plastic chair like this and she had to sleep on it for nine months without getting an apartment. She applied for public assistance, but she can. And so eventually the husband was too violent and even NYC sheriff and then process server refused to serve because he posed 
gun and knife pictures on Facebook, and they the, the process server they saw that, so they refused to take the so job. She was unable to instigate a divorce action, right? Or? And we are in the process of writing a motion asking the court to allow us to serve him by mail. And the court was actually very close. We just need to submit one more document. Then she returned, and her phone was disconnected for five weeks. And we were so scared. She told us that my husband agreed to marriage counseling, and I want to make it work. And I'm so tired of sitting on the chair. So a lot of our clients they have to choose between, you know, divorce or leaving abusive relationship and poverty. But again, coming back to this, we realized that, you know, eventually, actually, she reserves last Monday. And something else happened. Bad thing happened. But she left again. And this time, we actually. Try to do better because last time she told us she had counseling. She told us that she had support, but she did not. And this time we actually actively engage her and try to make sure that she had more support, not just legal support. And then I talk to different department director in my agency, try to make sure that she can also have other economic support and make some exception because as a single person without. Children, it's hard to have a lot of assistance in the system. So again, you know, I believe a successful divorce case can be done, can be litigated、uh, through great lawyering, but also you need a lot of other support, counseling, social worker, economic support, even family, friend support, and I think that's all necessary in achieving a good divorce.、Um, In when you, in your work, Andy, or in your life, but in your work, okay. High, so high conflict is the worst for children. Low conflict is the best for children.、Um, the an agreement is more likely to be a, a committed to. I don't mean legally necessarily, but you know, in general, than something adjudicated. And also, people grow over time. I think you said. Let's say.、Oh. Let's say. Let's say the person. People don't grow. What's the good? What's the good divorce? Or what's the goal? Assuming nobody grows. Just just assume the worst for, of the people. Assume nobody grows. What's a good divorce? Keep the kid out of the middle. Right. And I would say、um, become more and more separate. Right. Have your lives yeah, be separate, yeah, not intertwined.、Too. I. What I used to tell people what I mediated was.、Um, If you had a six-year-old, imagine yourself at your child's high school graduation. What do you want that high school graduation to look like? Do you, what do you want your child to say to you? Presumably, what you want your child to say to you is, "Mom, Dad, you had a divorce. I get that. That was for you. That was for your benefit. You treated me well, and I'm okay." Right? If you, if the kid's saying, "God damn it, I really hate you." All right, and you put me in the middle of all this trauma and difficulty, and it was—that's a bad divorce. Okay, so children first. That's the—that's basically my 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 view of a good、that's、divorce.、Right. And number two is what you're talking about. Growth.、So、if I can get some growth out of people and some self-awareness, I think that's great. And but children first. Well, I was going to say, I think、um, at that graduation, I would rather the child was saying, "I'm so excited about the college I'm going That's to." That's what I was、right? just going to say. You're paying for it. <laughs> I, I thought you were going、right. to say you want the kid at the graduation to say, 
can I borrow the car tonight right, right. or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Because your life is not I, your, I, is not I'd your like divorce. them to be yeah. together on the, uh, you know, on together embracing their child for their child's achievements. I cannot, and th those of us who practice divorce law used to, I don't do it anymore, the bar mitzvah, okay? Arranging the bar mitzvah between parents who are estranged is incredibly difficult. You get one seat, you get the next seat, let's figure out how, I mean, see. I had a case where they did, sep they actually did have separate events for one child. I, um, I know a woman who went to her ex-husband's 50th anniversary of his bar mitzvah uh, in California. <laughs> And she invited me to go. Like, a so, no, I mean, I'm just saying, like, they, you know, they, they were important people in each other's lives, and he was celebrating right. it. And, yeah. A, a rational social policy, to me, is children first. Okay? Right. And that, you know, that, that comes, children I, need to be safe. Ch they need to have safe as non-conflicted relationships with both parents. And if you can, whatever we can do to design a system that encourages that, so much the better. So, that is... A great note to end this final, to end this first section on, um, in, in talking about the ideas that, that came from Wendy's book and that she's, um, I hope, you know, elucidated to, for those of you who haven't yet read it, it's, it's a provocative and an exciting book. Um, it, and it, it does talk about the, you do talk about statistics and research. I know there's also the prescriptive and anecdotal part too. Um, and I think we've touched on some important issues about power and privilege and, and procedure, and it's a lot to take in. Um, I want to thank all, all three of you, especially you, Wendy, um, and those of you, again, who don't know about Sanctuary should really look it up, and of course, Andy, um, but disclosure, I knew him before this. So what, uh, from a matrimonial lawyer saying uh, the only good divorce is a short divorce, I think a lot of people here would probably agree, so that we could get on with our, one can get on with our lives, as we must get on with our evenings. Um, congratulations to Wendy for the publication of the book and, and for this discussion tonight. Um, to Jen for bringing her, the, her uh, practical knowledge and her perspective from Sanctuary to Andy for Andrew for his wealth of knowledge and opinions um, and again um, to Wendy for all your hard work um, I hope it's been informative or if not informative at least entertaining and um, I don't know Catherine do you have parting words or okay and thank you all again thanks thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast this recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.